0: Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 110, Aging Deer for Quality Venison. On this episode of Huntivore, we join Nick in a not-so-good Situation: Hospital bed needing assistance with a kidney stone. Spoiler: Procedure went well, recovery is going smooth. With all the questions Nick's ha- Nick has gotten on field care and aging deer, he thought it would be a great topic to talk about: how to get quality venison by taking some extra steps to let the deer hang, differences in initial aging and further dry aging, how flushing with water is good, soaking is not hide-on versus hide-off, and hanging-it environment details. If you have just gotten a deer or are getting close to putting a hit on one, this is a great listen. So get your game hoist ready for this episode of Huntivore. Well, hey folks. Beautiful day here in Michigan. A little bit overcast. We are coming to you here in the thick of the rut Unfortunately, at the time of this recording, I am not outside. I'm not even at work. I'm in a hospital bed. I'm hooked up to an IV machine, and I'm waiting to see a doctor for surgery. Yeah, crazy house stuff all of a sudden pops up. Uh, to be transparent, I, uh, I'm having kidney stones. The very first time uh, in my... Uh, life to be having kidney stones. Started those early in October, and here we are, early November, having complications. One of my kidney stones on his way out has performed the same maneuver in the Suez Canal that that tanker ship did, and lodged himself sideways. So that's been painful, hence why I've ended up here good news is, is that no incisions need to be made. It should be a quick turnaround as far as having the procedure done and getting back into life, getting back to work, and hopefully getting into the woods very, very soon. There's still time, so I'm not, uh, The season's not a loss, but at the same time, here I am, having to be patient, having to be a little bit worried just because of the nature of this whole beast. But anyway, just know that this is routine for the doctors. This is not going to be a future thing, hopefully. So, uh, yeah, we're just having to go through it. But anyway, I felt that this would be an excellent time for us to uh, divert away from my current happenings and into probably what yours current happenings are. As what I'm suspecting, many of us are putting deer on the ground or many of us are hoping to put deer on the ground and in that fashion, once you shoot that animal, it begins the now what process. It begins the the field dress and it begins the idea of what we're gonna do for butchering this animal. What I've got a chance to do is talk to many people on this very subject. There, are, people are asking questions. People are asking what I do. People are asking, well, what should I do if it's warm? And you know, when you put down a couple hundred pound animal or an animal that's going to be supplying supplying you with a good amount of, of meat, of course, you want to be able to protect it. You want to be able to utilize it and preserve it, and you also want to get the best bang for your buck, no, so to speak, out of that animal. You want to be able to get top quality, because, I mean, why are we going to go out into the woods and put all this effort in if we're just going to, you know, not care? So here we are, wanting the best out of four, our venison. I would say this even goes for across the whole gamut, this goes for wild game uh, as well, that aging all wild game can definitely have its benefits. I look at waterfowl and being able to age birds and even upland birds to be able to age them um, does a lot, A, for the flavor of the bird, B, for the tenderness, just like we're going to be talking about here uh, in a little bit with uh, with our deer, but then even the way that you can pluck these animals and the way that they you can get all, all the feathers off, but then again, to go even go uh, meat-wide, wild game-wide, the benefits of cooking these animals after they've gone through an aging process. Aging doesn't necessarily have to be this trend of dry aging. Uh, Dry aging and wet aging is what's happening after the fact of the process that I'm going to be talking about today. In fact, both of those would be excellent topics to be talking about uh, with your wild game. Do I want to uh, wet age or dry age my venison for future use? Um, Is there some special event you want to be able to have something... Or do you have a different preparation that you would like uh, something for the meat to do uh, differently than what it would do not being aged? So there is some talk about what we can do with dry aging, but that happens usually in a restaurant or that happens usually in a kitchen that has a curing chamber, that has a lot of sensors and monitoring uh humidity and being able to control those elements for long periods of time and we're not we're not on that topic we can be on that topic here soon enough um i myself am playing around with the idea of curing and drying meat uh for the sake of of being able to use it I'm, i'm working on some charcuterie uh but i'm still holding that back we want to be able to uh See how it develops a little bit more. So there's your teaser for a future episode. But again, we're not talking about the dry aging. We're talking about simply aging the animal from the field to the initial, first initial process of butchering. And so I do want to focus on on deer, being that it is deer season right now, all across the nation, and people are putting down animals. This process, I mean, like we've talked about on a number of occasions starts in the field with a good field dressing that making a non gut shot putting that through the through the lungs into the heart that's going to be your best uh placement if you happen to have a hiccup or something happen and you get a head shot or a neck shot well this just even this just opens that up even more for possibilities um, but avoiding the gut is going to be probably your biggest uh, thing that you want to do in the field, and I know that's something that we do all across uh, all of our shooting is avoid that ever-present worry of a gut shot. Not all is lost, but what uh, the reason we want to avoid the gut shot is, A, yeah, we now broken the barrier um, between what the animal is eating and that bacteria and then it's its own flesh but then at the same time it does take a little more effort to now find a gut shot animal um we want to get on these deer asap as soon as possible we want to be recovering that deer to be able to start this process i mean if it's if it's the uh end all be all best scenario it's snow on the ground, it's right around freezing temperatures or a little bit below freezing temperatures. You make the shot, the animal goes 20 yards, and you're able to take care of it almost instantaneously. Do we have those situations? No. I mean, we're looking at 60s right now for the weekend here in Michigan. It's a little little warm for how we want to be hunting during the rut, but that's neither here nor there. It's what we've been presented with. But anyway, getting on that deer is going to be uh, key because we want to start that field dress quickly, um, completely pulling out the gut, the liver, the lungs, and taking time and getting after uh, the anus, making that incision at the tail and circling around uh, the in there and being able to then pull that out or at least be loosening that up. Some people like to then cut the pelvis girdle and be able to then pull it out that way. That's one way. I don't always carry a uh, bone saw with me to a hunt. Um, I just like to get that cavity. I'll take the knife and I'll scrape it on the edges all the way around, loosening that up both from the inside and from the outside. And then with a little bit of pressure on both ends, uh, being able to pull that away from the wall, separating separating uh that colon you can get that out in one piece saving you the the uh effects of having to cut into that and spill um a bunch of feces inside your animal yeah you want to you want to stay away from that um but what i do carry in my my kill kit is going to be two gallon sized freezer bags and i do like to keep things from the gut pile from the fifth quarter is uh, we affectionately love to know it by, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll pull the heart. That's one thing. If it's, if it's all intact, I'm going to take the heart, um, the liver. After finding a few really good recipes for heart, or excuse me, for liver, I have really kind of put it on myself to keep uh, my venison liver. A little goes a long ways. One one deer liver is probably about what I'm going to need for the year. Um, but as I get better at making these recipes and finding out different ways to using them and really kind of taking advantage of that macronutrients or micronutrients that we can get uh, from organ meat, that might be something that I'm, I'm pulling a few more each time. But uh, so I'm keeping the heart, I'm keeping the liver. Um, ironically, I've been interested in keeping the kidneys, even though I'm sitting here in a hospital... <laughs> as a result of my kidneys, I'm still kind of on that to want to be able to use the kidneys um, in some real old world dishes. That would be really fun experiments to be able to do. And again, something that I'm taking out of the field. So that's why I'm bringing my uh, gallon size, be- or my gallon size uh, freezer bags for-, for. Cull fat has been one that have been recently wanting to pull that out as well. I've kept a couple. I've had maybe two or three attempts at using it, um, used it on meatballs. Really had a great uh, finish with those. Did a really nice job of keeping uh, the, actually the ball of the meat very moist. Issue I have had with call and before, if I haven't got a chance to get to it, um, it'll either like clump all up into a ball, and then it's, it seems like it's going to take time to spread it all out, and I just didn't have the time to do that. Or I froze one thinking that I could come back to it later and I just didn't have a very good result in getting that back into a sheet. I think it's one of those, if you happen upon call fat, it's better to use it quickly rather than let it go to the freezer. So that's what I am keeping out of my deer. So as we are at the field dress, we want to do our darndest to try and be able to get everything out and to have everything clean at that point. Um, if you nick the stomach, if you nick an intestine or a gallbladder, it's not the end of the world. This happens. This happens quite, quite often. But we just want to do our best to be able to get everything out of that cavity and to have that cavity be as clean as possible. As I'm finishing this job, some folks will actually go up and split the rib cage. Um, I haven't in recent years, haven't split the rib cage. I just really get my hand up in there, and I want to cut the esophagus as close to the base of the cavity as I can. I'm essentially wanting to be able to get this esophagus all the way out, and so it has a drain that there's going to be no pooling that happens in this cavity. I'm going to be able to just have that go right down into the throat of the animal. On top of that, if if this is end up going to be a, a tro- if this is a trophy buck, or it's going to be something that you want to mount on the wall with a shoulder mount, this next step you're probably not going to be able to do. But in any other case, uh, a new trick that I've been doing is actually cutting the esophagus from the outside, creating a drain that doesn't have to go through the whole neck of the animal and out the mouth, but really just right out to the uh, upper chest of the animal. So once I get above that uh, xiphoid process of the the rib cage, I want to make a cut in there. I'm going to be going through hide, through muscle tissue, and then into the esophagus there. And what I'm doing is essentially making a drain or shortening up the drain pipe so that whatever I do have in that cavity is going to be able to drain out much quicker. I think for the other, the idea too is I can get... Uh, we'll talk about this next step in a minute, too. But I'm also shortening the chain from being able to clean out the, the neck and the uh, face of the animal through their mouth, through this way, um, if I wanted to keep any parts of that. But anyway, at the same time, I'm shortening up that drain pipe. Because now, once I've got this animal at least fully gutted, and I've got a drain pipe, and I've got the ability for all this to drain... I'm going to get this animal back to where it's going to be able to be hung up, um, wherever situation has us going there. And hopefully along that way, you come across some running water, or at least a spigot where you can have a hose and a sprayer, and we're going to be flushing the animal with cold water. This is where people have come on both sides of the fence, where I've had a chance to have discussions with folks that say... uh, Yes, I appreciate that you flush your animal because I flush my animal for a number of reasons. I've also got folks that are saying, why are you you getting this surface wet? Why are you wanting to keep things wet? Why are you spraying down the meat? Um, At this point, I'm not spraying down the meat. I'm not spraying down uh, the quarters. We're still hide on at this point. And what I'm doing is I'm spraying out the inside cavity. A uh, couple of reasons. One, I want to lower the temperature as quick as I can inside that animal. I want to chill this animal out. Um, if I'm in uh, low temperatures, like 30s, um, that's it's going to be very helpful for, for bringing this temperature on down. But if I'm playing in those 40s and like, daytime highs getting into the 50s, like any chance I can to lower the temperature of this animal is going to be good. And so by using water that's out of a spigot or it's just on the cold setting, I am spraying that out on the inside of the animal. Nice slips in the paunch or the gut or into the gallbladder or into the intestines themselves. That's going to have some leaching effect that is probably on the uh, walls of that cavity and hitting that with some some water a dilutes it flushes it out of the cavity of that cavity there is a membrane that is separating meat from the inside of where those organs were at it's a fairly thick membrane and that's what keeps like as you're looking at your ribs and especially on domestic animals that rib or that membrane can be much thicker. And when you're cooking pork ribs, you actually pull that off. And that's just a pretty thick layer that separates the inside from the outside. And the same thing with, uh, with venison. There is that layer in there to protect that. So using that to our advantage, we're not necessarily eating that membrane that is on the inside. Let's use that and spray that all out, flushing out blood, flushing out dirt and debris, flushing out any of the material from the field dress that's going to help keep things clean when people do talk about like water and the animal they've talked about basically just like keeping keeping the animal wet at this point like they're like well don't you do you want to submerge it or like when i talk about spraying the animal like well I don't. I thought you said you wanted to keep the meat dry. This is merely one little step in a full process where if I want to get the best venison that I possibly can, I want to get as much of the foreign matter out of the way. I want to get all of the um, fluids from inside the animal uh, out of the way so that the meat has a chance to not be infected by these. Even contact, you know, I once I clean out the inside, like you know, and then I touch something on the outside of the animal, there's just the transmission of bacteria and fluids and, and everything else that goes along with this. Like, procru- procuring your own meat <laughs> is, a, is a tough job, and this is just one thing that you have to be able to do. So flushing it is what I'm saying do. Don't just leave it wet, soaking. Um, the flush is merely just one aspect that I've been able to use more and more for the temperature control and the cleanliness inside of the cavity. Because then we couple that with the idea that we're going to be using moving air and having air that is not stagnant, but just moving around the around the animal. You can turn a box fan, in fact, I nabbed a box fan from our house quite a while back, uh, to bring down into my shop that is going to provide moving air for when I've got the wood stove going. That translated to into, well, hey, if I'm hanging a deer here, why don't I just turn the fan facing the, the carcass? And now I have a whisking of uh, air. I have moving air going across uh, the animal, which is going to be able to do a number of things. Um, one, bacteria loves moisture bacteria loves water hence why people would get confused why, why why are you spraying your animal down with water well i'm using it to flush i'm not keeping it wet so then now that i flushed that animal moving the air across it is going to wick away that moisture that we did have on the inside second it's also going to begin to wick moisture uh from the animal that that that's on other parts of the animal. Um, say like when, when we opened them up, you've already got one of the hams that are sitting there, and you may have some blood leaching, you may have some exposed muscle there. Creating a pedicle or creating a dry layer is gonna help keep bacteria from getting in between those muscle fibers. You're essentially trying to, as you've got this moving air, keep everything dry because that's where bacteria or mold spores can't grab hold of. You're actually giving yourself um, a little leeway by having that be a dry surface. We're not, again, we're not dry-aging the meat at this point. Um, I actually still have the hide on, so the box fan isn't gonna be wicking moisture off of anything that's covered up with hide at this point. It's going to be, just on those exposed areas where it's going to be drying out. I recently read an article from Hank Shaw. It was actually in his newsletter, Uh, Hunter Angler Gardner Cook, um, if you wanted to find his handle. Um, And he was talking specifically on dry aging. This is that aspect that we were talking at the beginning um, where you're going to be drying cuts of meat for long periods of time in controlled settings very cool stuff. A lot of a lot of control and a lot of setup is needed for this process. I shouldn't say a lot of setup. In fact, that Hank in his new le- newsletter goes on to say talk about the equipment uh, that he uses. Um, but he did talk about at a point that when he was putting the, some of these cuts in a uh, curing chamber at his house or a modified refrigerator that. You would want to be careful of the surrounding uh, food that was around whatever you were trying to age and cure because there could be um, some odors and smells that are picked up by uh, by your, your curing meat or by your dry-aged meat. So that got me thinking about the scenario that I have set up in my shop. My shop happens to be a uh, two-stall garage that... Is basically the Hunt of headquarters. It holds a lot of my uh, butchering equipment, but at the same time, it also serves as my fix it shop for all my tools and everything else lawnmower, uh, gas, oil, etc. It's a do it all, two stall, detached garage. The that got me thinking that as I am hanging my animal in there, is it being exposed to dust and debris and fumes and odors from stuff that I I do have in there? Um, and this has been something i thought about for a while, but then hearing that from Hank, like, oh, yeah, this is something that when you are setting up where your animal's going to be hung up, thinking about maybe taking the gas cans and putting those outside and just storing them outside for a little while while you're aging your deer or what whatever else you have that creates a lot of fumes or a lot of dust. Um, luckily, on my shop, I've got a two-stall garage door that rolls up and I can then blast all the dust that's in there out of the building to really air it out and it's not fully shut up as far as I don't have insulation and um, everything buttoned up in this building quite yet. That might be down the road, but at the same time, like there's still fresh air coming in and out of this building. So having that, um, having that be the case, I do still feel safe hanging and leaving my deer hung up for pretty long periods of time in, in this shop. But when you are setting this up, think about that environment that you're going to be setting up in. Is it going to be in your normal garage where, yeah, you got to think about some of these things that create a bunch of fumes? Or, you know what? Your car is going to have to spend a couple days outside while your animal's hanging. Who knows? Maybe you have a separate setup dedicated to hanging animals. And at that point, I applaud you. Good on you. And uh, can I borrow that next time? <laughs> When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and in the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes. And use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your kit. Now I got to the part here too, where we get to talk about hide on and hide off. This is one that goes back and forth. Living in Michigan, hide on is the traditional way that we've usually done things. That why not use this incredible layer of uh, of fur and skin to protect that animal from these fumes, from the dust, from the spores, from the bacteria. If we haven't interfered with that layer, there is gonna be no transfer of anything underneath of that, and that's gonna help keep that meat super clean. And that's what we want. We wanna be able to provide super clean meat. Um, Second is that by keeping the hide on, I'm essentially saving the drying process, that pedicle or that layer that's going to form on the outside because the meat's going to dry out. I'm not going to have to do that to all of my cuts of meat. You know, a little bit goes a long way and you're like, oh, you're just trimming off this little outside uh, crust. Yeah, but that adds up, especially if I do that with the whole animal and if I'm thinking along the lines of burger. That's a nice big pile of burger that I've now not been able to use. So at that point, I'm still thinking, like, I'm going skin on. I'm protecting uh, that meat from fully drying out. And I'm also protecting it from the outside elements. One of the biggest complaints people have, like, well, isn't it super tough to get your hide off then? Well, with a little bit of patience and a little bit of some handy tools, i can get this hide off pretty quickly um it does take a little bit longer than you know a green skin or something that's like where you basically put it down and then skin it right away you don't necessarily need anything to grip the hide it's just going to pull right on down um yeah some simple hide grippers i know they're they're for sale and they're pretty cheap um, in some meat packing uh companies. Um, essentially some forceps that just allow you to like pinch on to the hide and be able to pull down so you yourself are not holding on to the meat but you've got an easier way you got some leverage those are great tools to have around Um, if you don't have those i've recently started using um, either channel locks or i've used some vice grips and clicking that onto the meat and being able to pull just gives me a better firmer hold up to bring that carcass or excuse me bring that hide off the carcass much easier my friend uh just happened to get a doe and so going through this process like or getting ready for talking about uh aging the animal as i'm doing that uh as of right now as well when we we decided, we made a uh, decision to pull that animal from sitting into the garage because in that two-stall garage, it's got a nice big concrete floor. And when the temperatures were hitting low uh, during the night, everything would get real cool. And that, uh, concrete floor would stay cold all day. And so being able to keep it inside and in that, uh, in that shed and in that shop. Um, We got to some warm temps, but we were able to keep it nice and cool just because we were next to that concrete floor. Um, But we went to put the animal into now refrigerator because the lows the next couple days are going to be uh, a little too uncomfortable for us. They're going to be a little high. But we went and skinned the animal. And as we were were pulling that off, once we got past some of that real dried-on area, the hide started to pull away very nice. And we were at, um, what are we at, four days? I think we're at a total of four days so far on that specific dough. But it was fun, to, or it was great to see, like as I as I pulled this down, um, it was pulling very nicely away from the meat because it's had time to do some work. The enzymes have had a chance uh, to go to work on the carcass itself and so when pulling this away it was also the connective tissue was beginning to loosen Um, also since it's not been uber cold it hasn't had a chance to freeze up you get that too when the temps get below freezing that that carcass will freeze on there and then yeah that is really a, a, a tough way to go about it but being patient using a good knife and like i said some channel locks or vice grips or if you have a hide puller That's going to help make that whole process go smooth. So then we have where we need to buy some time. You don't have a shop, you don't have a shed, and you live in a really warm state. Creativity is going to be your best friend. Um, Much like I was talking about uh, with our friends, dear, that we have a fridge dedicated to just deer and beer, and we were able to get his deer in there. If you're in a warm state and you wanted to have a chance to age a deer and do this process yourself, having one of those garage fridges is going to be your best friend. Because now at this point, you can take the hide off the animal. And I would say for any time you're going into um, a refrigerator, into some sort of uh, something that's going to contain the animal, yeah, it's time to to take that hide off because now you want to be able to move more air around it. Are you still going to get the still the same uh, drying that's going on inside the refrigerator? If it's one of the modern uh, frost-free refrigerators, yeah, you're going to have, you're going to have a fan, you're going to have to have some moving air in there. So it is going to dry some of that out, but at the same time, the, the benefits of that uh, are going to outweigh the little pedicle that we're gonna have to cut off here uh in a little bit. But yeah, going hide off and a quarter the deer and keeping it on the bone. Keeping it on the bone is going to be important especially when we're around the time of rigor mortis. Uh rigor mortis is that process of when you kill that animal it is going to then stiffen up and then as it stiffens up it's then going to go through that enzyme process so, rigor mortis can last anywhere from, uh, you know, 4 to 5 hours to 12 hours. i am talking about this at the hour mark. So, like, you shoot the animal and it has died within, like, the next, you know, in 4 hours, that thing's going to start to be getting stiff. It's going to get very stiff for the next, yeah, 12 to 18 hours. And you want to be able to let that process do its thing. And by keeping all the meat on the bone, that's going to help rigor mortis do its job correctly and not shorten your muscle fibers, or what they refer to as shortening. If I were to cut off all those pieces of meat off the bone and then let them sit there, they have the potential that as rigor mortis is now happening to that piece of meat off the animal, it is going to shrink and shorten those muscle fibers are going to contract and with them not attached to anything there's nothing stopping them from contracting very far thus giving you a tough piece of meat even for a backstrap it could be super tough so by leaving it on the bone you are saving yourself from having those go through that shortening process um easiest way that i've been able to quarter that out is just the normal way you quarter it out you have your two front shoulders so opening it up from the armpit and just cutting up uh through the armpit and as you pull that away you'll see where the scalpula will finally pull away from the the carcass and you just kind of work your knife around until you see daylight and that whole shoulder will come right off it's not even attached to any joint at that point it's just free floating on the side of the animal so there's your two shoulders uh, the next thing that I, I work on would be uh, the, the rib cage of the animal. I would then, uh, where I've already cut off or made my incision to gut out the backside, I have my two uh, flank stakes, or my yeah, the, the flanks that are laying there. I would separate those, peel those off against um, the ribs there. And then fold that piece of meat out, and now I can then trace uh, the rib and go all the way down the animal in a straight line. I wanna be careful not to get too high on the animal or too much too close uh, to that dorsal area or the spine because I might have a, I might risk cutting into the back strap. But if I keep two or three inches down, even four to be safe, I actually take a, uh, my boning knife and I will cut on the outside and give myself a line, cutting that meat and fat along the ribs, giving myself uh, a line that I'm going to track. I try not to use a ton of power tools, but I have used a hacksaw um, that I then have a specific blade that I use just for processing animals. Being able to put that on a battery-powered hacksaw or reciprocating saw I just run that down through the ribs and that is a breeze. They, it cuts right through each of those ribs. I am able to then take that rib section off as a sheet and that can go then lay right there into the fridge. Do that with both sides. I go as far as I can, which kind of, it. I get down towards the chest of the animal where then I'm going to have the briskets that are there and I'm going to have um, the cyphoid process, and I'm going to have those, like, last two remaining ribs that are, that are attached, and I usually leave that on the neck portion. So once I've taken off those ribs, I can now see where I'm going to make my cut for the neck and the chest. I kind of leave those two pieces together, um, in this process, but then I find where that's going to be at. I take my knife and I score, uh, around the meat, so then I'm cutting, basically where I'm gonna be separating my back straps from where the next next section is going to be. Once I've made that cut, if I happen to be able to get my knife in between uh, a vertebrae, I can do that and just pop that off quite easily. If I need the hacksaw at this point, you can just do that again, rip, zip, and away it goes. Now I'm ready, I have hanging left is the two uh, hindquarters and the saddle section where I've got uh, the backstraps, and the tenderloins. Uh, Scott Ree, a um, gentleman I've watched in the past, he's got an amazing YouTube channel, and I've talked about him on a number of occasions. Um, he talks about finding the second uh, vertebrae from the coccyx. So once you've gotten that like anus end of where the deer is at, move yourself down to vertebrae and put your knife in between there And pop that joint at that vertebrae there. Then you can work yourself around. um, And at that point, you don't even need the saw to be able to pop that joint or to get between those two vertebrae. It's merely just then making your incision, cutting the two back straps. And then I just lift the section and it peels away, leaving the saddle. That piece then gets laid into the fridge. And now I'm left with my two haunches. I just create a line down the middle, cut the flesh down the middle of the pelvis, run the reciprocating saw between the two, and now I have two hind legs that are ready to be uh, hung up in that fridge. I've seen people hang, and I've seen people not hang. Um, The benefit of hanging inside of your uh, refrigerator is airflow being one, and two, using, using the available space. Uh, you got a lot of vertical space when you've got those refrigerators and you pull out as many shelves as you can. Um, the horizontal space gets eat up by all the shelves, and sometimes when you get bigger cuts or bigger quarters, they do eat up a lot of that space. I've actually in mine pulled out flat or, um, excuse me, solid surface uh, racks, and I now have just metal mesh racks. So I put those in so when I lay that down I'm getting air to flow up from underneath as opposed to on top. If you don't have those and you just have um, like a glass plate or plastic shelves that are in there and you don't want to take them out either putting um, a wire rack on top of it to help give it some space or just rotate the meat as it's in there. So let it stay there overnight go in rotate the meat and that just helps um, everything to to kind of, yeah, dry out, stay dry, and not to have any bacteria form. Because now you're in the refrigerator, and it's kind of, if you've got uh, odors or anything growing in there, that's that's what you don't want to have. A quick tip that I did get from a a, uh, a lamb farmer or sheep farmer, when he does his lambs, um, and he goes into uh, a seasonal cooler with his, that are all skin off, He actually sprays down the surface of the lambs with red wine vinegar. I'm sure you can use white vinegar. He just happened to use red wine vinegar. He's like the color matched, so that's what he went with. But in doing that, you create this thin layer of, you have this thin acidic layer of moisture that you put on the side to, as it gets into the cooler, just to inhibit bacteria and fungus and mold and all that from growing again you're getting back to it like you're you're wetting down the meat again why are we wetting down the meat when we want it to be dry well at this point it's one of those like if you can give uh an upper leg of putting an acidic layer on the outside that's going to help uh keep the keep your meat clean we're not doing this a number of times you're just giving it like a head start basically uh keeping the outside of that meat, uh, from getting contaminated in, you know, an environment that contamination can happen, be it a seasonal cooler or a beer fridge. The last route it's not one that's, uh, preferable, but it is one that'll work if you've got nothing. And that's, that's your cooler. Um, taking ice, bagged ice, and then wrapping it in plastic or at least covering it in plastic and laying that down, keeping the drain plug open, laying your quarters on top and then closing the lid. You're separating your meat from the ice but at the same time you're letting the coolness of the ice fill that cooler and so keeping that lid down is going to be good. What are you foregoing in this whole process? It's the airflow and that's the tough part. This will be a route that you could keep it in for a couple of days to buy you time until you could get to a better aging spot. But keeping it in a cooler with ice, it's better than just sitting outside. I guess that's that's the only thing. Uh, frozen milk jugs also work good. Our coffee maker is super finicky, and so we have to get distilled water for our coffee maker. I've thought about getting a distilled uh water uh spigot in our household that we could use because we use it enough but as of right now we just get the jugs and they're cheap enough that it's it's fine. And coffee is important enough to me that it's worth this little extra extra purchase. But now I have jugs, gallon jugs at my disposal. I'll fill those with regular tap water and then go put them in my freezers. Um, a to fill the space until I uh, need the available space i just at least have a cool sink in there so that ha- say happen the uh, power goes out i have at least ba- or, uh jugs of ice in there that are keeping everything cold so that i'm buying myself more time and it makes the freezer work less because it's got l- more ice in there it's got more things that are cold a full freezer is a happy freezer because it doesn't have to run as often So that's where we're getting to on that idea. But anyway, frozen milk jugs are a good thing to to help you out. Um, But yeah, airflow is definitely your problem. That would be a solution that if you were waiting for a processor or if you were waiting to find yourself a uh, garage fridge, I would use the cooler in that instance. Well, Nick, you've said a whole lot about aging the deer, how to age the deer. Why do you go through all the trouble of this? Why is it something that you want to put uh, all this effort into? Well, two main reasons that I really like to do this is because, one, I'm getting the meat as tender as I can. I wanted to find the article that Danielle Pruitt wrote, oh, several years ago, and her whole article was on the tenderization of meat, uh, due to days of aging, and starting at the first couple days or at time of death through rigor mortis, there was that's the when the meat is uh, the most tough. It is not tender, but then as you went on from day three, four, and five. You could, and I forget the measurement, that's why I really wanted to find this, Was but they had a measurement of tenderness that they were working with. And that was going up exponentially each day that the animal was hanging. The first seven days had the most exponential growth in tenderization. As those enzymes were working and things were beginning to relax within the meat, That's where most of the tenderization work was happening, was within those seven days. Past seven days, from 7 to 14, there begins to be a slight plateau that the exponential amount of work being done begins to slow. Work is still happening, but it's not at such a rate as what it was at day uh, 3 to day 7. And then finally, from day 14 to day 21, that plateau continues. Is tenderization happening? Yes, but it is at a very slow rate. So of the benefit of getting more tender meat, I have gone with uh, a benchmark for myself at seven days of hanging. That gives me a quality product that I can maintain with the seasonal rudimentary setup that I have within my garage. That is something that I can have control of, that is something that I can take care of, and that is something that I can get a better uh, taste, or a better uh, eating venison from. As you get more kit, as you get more experienced, you can keep these for longer. So there are gonna be people that have the ability to go from day seven to day 14. They're gonna get an even more tender product and great for them. It all depends really on when we can get after this too. There's gonna be times where because of temp and the way things are going, it might only get to hang five days. Darn, I'll just have to let it, uh, I'll have to use a little more marinade or (laughs) have the real test. Can I tell the difference between a five-day age and a seven day age meet. That is, I guess that would be another test that we could do. Can I tell the difference? Uh, But there's just times where you got to cut it earlier than the seven days. There are moments too, where we're not able to get to it. And it's better if we hold off and cut it at 10 days or 12 days. At that point, we are getting a little bit more of that benefit. But I try to keep my one bench around seven days that we are able to get an animal into some sort of hanging scenario, whether it be in a fridge or whether it be in uh, a shop and be able to let it become tender. The second result that I get from that is it's gonna be better in cooking. When I've got this piece of meat now that it's gone through these processes, and in the fact of being either in a refrigerator or even hanging, there is going to be moisture loss. I know we're not in that realm of dry aging, but at the same time, there was some moisture loss on the carcass. And as I've been doing this, there's not a lot of blood, there's not a lot of purge in my venison after I, when it's cut. So I cut it and there's not this leaching of blood or leaching of water and protein because it's been able to drain out. It's been able to, through those seven days, leach off. Uh, either through the atmosphere or drip uh, on, into the bucket uh, at the base of the animal. But that, getting that water out of there results in a better product when it comes to cooking. I get a better sear. I get better um, marinade absorption. I get better uh, reaction with brine. You get seasonings to work better on this drier piece of meat because it is not filled with all of that fluid to dilute it. So I feel like you get a better cooking experience. Oh, when you go to sear it, because it is so lean, you get a better sear on your, your browning on that because you're not having to first uh, boil off or sizzle off that water, which steams the meat and makes it gray. So by getting as much moisture off that through the, through the hanging aging process, you do end up with a better cooking product. I didn't put it in my notes because I did want to talk about it, uh, but I didn't put it as in an absolute benefit. And that is going to be uh, that my that my venison's not going to be gamey. We've had a discussion about gamey before, and gamey is the fact that people are eating something that is not corn raised or wheat raised on some domestic grain uh, or soybean, um, that's a flavor profile that we get from all of our other domestics. And we're going to get something that's completely unique when you are uh, eating wild game that isn't necessarily going after all of your grain products, but happens to browse or eat something different. You're going to get, I would say, a mild, a milding of intense flavors, but at the same time, I don't think what you're going to get is you're going to not going to have your venison taste more like beef if you're going to hang it. Um, will will the pungency of a rutting buck be lessened to something closer to an older doe? by going through uh, aging your deer, that is what I would say yes to. That you're having time that enzymes are working and things are releasing, you're going to get a milding of flavors with that rutting buck. But at the same time, because we are losing moisture, we are condensing flavor, you're going to have a more pronounced venison flavor. When it comes to hanging your meat, so there's an uh, there's a there's a balancing act that's going there. So when I say better tasting, uh, that's going to be primarily up to you, the person who's preparing it. Uh, the person what you likes and dislikes are of venison in particular. But I can tell you from this process, you are going to get more tender meat, which will then also result in better cooking. Which then, given the two of those, I think would uh, would equal a better eating experience all the way around. Whether you're liking the rutting buck or not, it should be wonderful to eat. So yeah, there is aging a deer in a nutshell. I hope I've answered some questions. I hope this episode actually gets pushed around uh, to different people who do want to hang their deer and who do want to age their deer um, after a hunt. This isn't going to be confused with dry aging specific cuts, as in for, for steaks or for roasts. That'll be another topic. I think we need to get an expert in on that one. This happens to be just for making your venison a much better product once you're ready to then either butcher it, or put it on the skillet right away. So yeah, however you end up hanging your deer, whether it's going to be in a fridge or in your shop, make sure that you're getting some moving air on there. And, you know, hosing it down and rinsing it off is a good thing. But when it comes time to break that animal down, make sure that the knives you're using are always sharp.